Hey, 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 you beautiful people. Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Now, I've mentioned this in the past, but one of my favorite aspects of hosting this show, producing these episodes twice a week, is the amazing real-life connections that have occurred or been made possible by the creation of this show. Today's episode is a beautiful manifestation of that phenomenon at work. I first came into contact with today's guest, Barry Rabkin, back when he facilitated episode 43's guest, Dick Zhang, coming on the show to talk about the new startup Identified Technologies that was applying drone technology to the construction industry to help make surveying and planning simpler. Now, more than two years and almost 200 episodes later, Barry himself is coming on as the chief marketing officer of Identified Technologies to talk drones, startup culture, brand building, and much, much more. It was an awesome conversation that took place in the Identified Tech office where they are hard at work building one of the most exciting startups to come out of Pittsburgh in a while. I think you're really going to enjoy this, so let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Barry Rabkin. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. So Barry, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, man. And more importantly, thank you for being a listener from really early on. I don't know when the first time you listened to the show was, but... I might have been episode one, man. There's not a lot of people that combine my love of Pittsburgh, Ultimate, Startups, um, Podcasts, all in one. So it's a a beautiful thing. It's a huge market too, those (laughs) all those topics. (laughs) We're we're like the only people at the center of that Venn diagram. But no, I I couldn't be happier to have you in Pittsburgh and and to have you doing what you're doing. And and like bringing huge names, right? I just thought you had the CEO of Wealthfront uh, on here. So to be like in in that company, it's pretty flattering. I appreciate you having me. And, And the other thing, you know, for me, what I didn't really anticipate when I started this was I knew that I would be getting to certain people like I'm this media entity I that can open doors for me to some degree or another. You're like a white male Oprah. <laughs> but what I didn't anticipate is the kind of people around it and the introductions, whether they were a listener or a fellow podcaster or other kind of connections that have happened. I just had no an- anticipation of that when I started this and it's been really cool. And this is just one of the many relationships that I really value. But um, to, to start things off for people, Back in episode 43, you facilitated the introduction to the CEO of Identified Technologies, uh, your colleague, Dick Zhang, and we talked about how this isn't a drone company, but a robotics company that is, is doing some really interesting things. And for some people, I'm sure, maybe didn't hear the episode, or it's just been a while, it's been like two years. To start off by providing a little bit of an update on the company, uh, just in broad strokes, what it does, what you're working on these days, and uh, where things stand. Absolutely. So Identified Technologies is the leading fully managed commercial drone solution. So what that means is a lot of big enterprise companies don't want to take advantage of drones, but there's a lot that has to happen behind the scenes to support that. So you have to have 
all your regulatory concerns in place, follow all the rules. You got to um, obviously have the drone technology, the flight planning technology, the data processing, the storage and analytics, and it all has to play nice together. So what we offer is drone mapping at the push of a button. And if you're a billion dollar company, you want to get us on one site or a thousand sites, you work with us, we do all that, that full integrated chain to get you the insights you need. And we have changed a little bit since you had that conversation with Dick. At the time, we were actually making our own drones in-house. And as you said, we were a robotics company. We've actually transitioned to that to really being a purely software company. Um, now, DJI has sort of risen up as the, the major player, kind of the iPhone of the drone world, basically ate up all, all the competitors. And we can get incredibly high-quality drones from them for less than it would cost us just in parts to make them ourselves. Right. So it just made sense for us to let them focus on what they do best so we can focus on what we do best on the software side. And that was one of the most interesting things that came out of my conversation with Dick was the the fact that as much as the service you're providing is really powerful, the data that you're collecting as the service provider is really what gives a company like this the kind of exponential growth potential outside of the service-based offering. So that was really cool. Um, I'm curious, you, you actually mentioned the, the regulations associated with this. In the last two years, or just in general, can you talk a little bit about how drones have or, or are being regulated, how that's changed? Because I know I had my own drone for a little while and was flying it around, and you had to get special permits to fly in certain places. And I quite frankly, probably didn't spend as much time reading over the rules as I should have been, but I'm sure that that's much more of a, a prescient concern for you guys, given it's the, the company's livelihood. Yeah. Um, when I first joined, that was my single biggest concern. I, I was impressed with the whole team. I knew that they could execute on the technology front, but if the government passes a law that you know you can't do X commercially, you just can't. Um, so that, that was my biggest concern. And there wasn't clear laws when we started. It was kind of the wild, wild west. People were doing whatever they could get away with. Uh, at the time, you actually had to get a commercial pilot's license if you wanted to fly a drone commercially. So that meant, and and the skills aren't even transferable, right? To, to fly a Boeing 747 is not going to actually help you fly a drone. Um, and now, as of about last August, you could get a Part 107 from the FA, which is it's like a 60-question multiple-choice test, and with that, uh, anybody within reason can fly a drone commercially. And it, it's common-sense stuff in terms of knowledge and rules that make a lot of sense, right? You shouldn't fly next to an airport. You shouldn't fly through a crowd of uh, preschoolers. You shouldn't fly at night. Very, very sensible rules, but th that's the main requirement now for what you have to pass and, and the uh, operational rules that you have to follow. And I think that the regulations are always going to be a step behind the technology. So right now, you actually have to have physical line of sight on the drone anytime you're flying it, which makes sense given kind of the limitations of the technology. So that means you can't fly at night and you have to have someone physically there watching the drone. But they're already building out drones that have built-in seek and avoid technology. So if they come up to a, a crane that was placed in the middle of a job site, they're actually going to see that crane and fly around it. They physically will not fly into it. So with things like that, you don't necessarily need a person watching it because the drone itself is smart enough to fly around any obstacles that they see. And as I said, I think that they're, they're not necessarily keeping perfect pace with the regulations and the technology. It's a step behind, but I would expect in the next couple of years, we'll see drones where you can have it fly for 100 miles without any human involvement whatsoever, and it can do it safely and efficiently. Wow. Drones kind of fall under that umbrella of terminology in the kind of tech sphere 
that if you're not a practitioner, you have a vague idea of where things stand, but you really don't know how to separate myth from reality. Uh, it's kind of like AI or self-driving cars or all these other things where there's you know a, a quick little article on TechCrunch or Bloomberg or something, but you don't really know where things stand. Um, and, and in my perception, you know, having flown a few of these drones, it seems like the rate of technical improvements is just insanely fast, whether it's the drones are getting smaller or they're adding these new capabilities. You alluded to the fact that DJI is producing such high quality hardware that it just makes sense financially for the for your business to purchase from them. But in terms of the service offering that you're providing as a company, how do you think about developing that as the technology continues to increase at such a rapid pace? Great question. Um, a lot of people come to us and they say, well, I got deep pockets, billion dollar company, what's the best drone? And Drones, even though they are rapidly advancing to the point that uh, a two-year-old drone is basically obsolete at this point, they're also getting more and more specialized. So you're going to have a great drone for uh, film. You're going to have a great drone for transporting things that maybe you know an Amazon would use. You have uh, these kind of hyper-specializations. So for us, we're much more focused on solving the unique problems that our customers have and you know how the drones help us do that, mainly... A drone for us is simply a sensor that can go up in the sky automatically and collect the data that we need. The other kind of frills aren't as important to us. So our progress to us is, hey, can it do it even more accurately because it has a better sensor, better camera? And other than that, it's not that it's less about the hardware and much more what you do with that data. So we have an entire team built on on building out that software, building out the analytics to answer the hardest questions and the most important questions for our customers. So, you know, uh, how do we give them the information so their jobs aren't going to run late, so things can happen on time, so they can happen more efficiently, so they know their real costs, um, so if there is a problem, they can get ahead of it uh, before they've invested huge time and resources. And that's really much more on the big data, the analytics side, that's what happens once the data is collected, not actually the data collection itself. Gotcha. The drone is just kind of a means to an end. <laughs> yeah. So, so bringing things a little full circle here, you talked about before you started here at Identified Tech, you were at Heinz. You've, you've been managing brands for basically your entire career, more or less. But there's really different situations that you've found yourself in. You've been at Heinz, uh, Aura Ida, the the French fries you were yeah. in charge of, and that was a kind of big pre-existing brand that you took the reins of more or less. And then conversely here, identified you've been a part from the real genesis of the company and of the brand, shaping it, reshaping it, and communicating to the public, your potential customers, what the value of your brand is and what you're offering. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you've adapted from those two situations and what you've maybe taken from that previous experience into what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, I have a weird and wonderful background. So, and, and I feel like if nothing else, covering such different products and different audiences has kind of helped me see that, you know, you can market anything. It's just about matching up a problem and a solution and a demographic, have it all line up. So fresh out of college, I was really into street dance and there's a decent chance, um, if someone was into breakdancing or hip-hop dance um, at any point between like 2005 and 2015, 
you might have been on Cypher Styles. That was our, our website. We grew into the largest e-commerce um, street dance site of its kind. And the great opportunity that that gave me was really building a brand that isn't about the product. It's about the community. It's about the culture. It's about the the values of it. And I try to bring that to anything I do since then. So whether whether you're selling French fries or drones or whatever, it's not about that company. It's not about that product. It's about your your customers, your consumers, their needs, and and how you can help them achieve that. Some differences that I saw are at a startup, you are just, and I, I'm sure, you know, you're talking to entrepreneurs every day, so I'm sure you see this, but you're trying as hard as you can to build something from nothing. And the big risk, the biggest risk is not taking action, not making a change. Whereas at a big corporation that's already, you know, uh, Arida was a, a half billion dollar a year company, the big risk is making a change. You don't want to rock the boat because everyone has comfortable jobs and they have this this long heritage of success, in some case of over 100 years. And any change you make, you feel a lot of pressure. Like, is this going to kind of crack the golden egg? And I I love in startups kind of that that willingness to make changes. And, and I feel like the optimism and the, the almost audacity that's required in that culture um, where, you know, everyone on board fundamentally has to believe that, yeah, we, we can make a change for the better. I, I, I love that, that cultural difference. In terms of creating a community around something, I know in the kind of hobbyist drone pilot world, there is a definite community there of, hey, look at the new feature, look at the new drone look at the new thing i tried here's some video i shot has that how has that worked though in the kind of the b2b space with this company is that something that you can do or what what is really how have you met the construction companies that you're serving where they are yeah um t- so two answers to that one i think before identified i'd seen b2c consumer companies you know fritos or coca-cola is being a little more of the you're selling like sizzle not steak it's a little bit more based on like the the aura around the product and the hype and like the b2b enterprise much more just like cold hard decisions based on cold hard facts and what i've seen is nothing could be further from the case because if you buy the wrong brand of chips or the wrong sneakers you're not going to lose your job over it you're not going to lose your livelihood over it whereas if you're buying uh, like an enterprise solution, and and our customers tell us we live and die by these numbers. They have to be right. So if they're staking their company and their livelihood based on you, you have to build up a degree of trust and a relationship that goes way above and beyond anything for a normal kind of retail purchase. So just that that would be my first <laughs> advisement. Is is it is much more important to have the relationships and actually on the B two B side. And almost all our early customers and identified were either classmates of mine or friends of mine or network that was able to take that risk and, and give us that chance because they trusted me and knew that we weren't just kind of in it for a quick buck. But but I think, you know, you got to remember people literally staking their livelihood on, on giving your company that chance and, and, and taking the humility that, that comes with that. Gotcha. So just more generally, there's a theme within all of the kind of marketing world where everyone has their secret recipe. And at the end of the day, it's kind of all uh, very similar. There's definitely people with small edges, but what actually happens is the there's there's a phenomenon where the, the new post comes out and, hey, this is the strategy I've been using on LinkedIn for the last two years that's given me all my success. 
here's how it works. And the reason the post is being written now is because it's worked for two years and that's basically starting to wane or has waned. And now that I'm giving it away, a bunch of people are going to copy it and that edge completely goes away. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your own process for developing marketing tactics through experimentation? You don't necessarily have to give away a a secret if you've got something in your tool belt, tool belt, but how you go about experimenting and then validating or proving the experiments that you've run. I I am always kind of skeptical when I hear about these super innovative marketing tactics. Usually what I see is it's a really normal, ordinary marketing tactic just pitched in a, in a way that's kind of creative. But it's not that the tactic is creative. It's that the way the tactic is promoted is creative. And, and I mean, you can't blame people for marketing and trying to sell their stuff. But virtually every successful marketing campaign I've ever seen is just a variation on the same theme, which is having clarity and consistency in your messaging across a a complete sales and marketing funnel. Um, So the same way that on a first date with somebody, you probably don't want to propose. If it's like a big $50,000 enterprise product, you're not going to ask for the sale the first time they come to the site. Because at that point, they may barely know your industry. They may not understand your solution or your, your, your unique product. It's too early. You're not there yet. So what I try to do and what my team does a great job of is first, you know, you want to get your lead to the site. You're going to do that with a combination of content marketing, blogs, webinars, um, pay-per-click advertising, things like that. Once you get them to the site, you're going to get them to, um, and as you go through this funnel, you're going to get them to a landing page where you've made a compelling offer, maybe it's an ebook, um, but it, it's something that kind of addresses a real pain point that they have. You're going to go deeper on what benefits they're going to find in that product. Usually you're going to have a conversion page where you ask them, hey, please give us your email so we can follow up with you. And in exchange for that, we're going to give you this. God willing, it's actually valuable. You're not just hyping uh, yourself, but you're giving really valuable um, uh, company neutral content. There's just thought leadership that can help them in whatever they do. And then from there, try to build that relationship up. So maybe you have a drip campaign that is kind of slowly giving them more and more information as they work down that funnel, getting more to the actual sales process, kind of deeper, more specific questions, and then offers for maybe free demos or discounts or whatever it is to to follow up. And then from there, finally, hopefully convert them into a customer once they have all the information they need to make that decision and then onboard them and then get them as a long-term champion for your company, spreading the good word. But Every marketing campaign I've ever seen is just some variation on that process. Gotcha. Are there any specific tools or marketing tech that you live and die by or you... Yeah. Um, there's a lot of good marketing automation technology. Um, two of the biggest, or I guess three of the biggest ones I see are Marketo, Pardot, which is what we use, and HubSpot. They're all very similar. Um, they all sort of automate that process of communication. Um, they track that process so you know exactly where each lead is at in their journey, what uh, content they've interacted with, what content is working most powerfully for you. And they're all invaluable, but they're also pretty time consuming. So a lot of people think like, oh man, this is so great. We'll just get it and we'll make money. But you really have to have someone where it's almost their full-time job is kind of running this, having it all tied together. And keeping their finger on the pulse, keeping their finger on the pulse. And it's also a very different skill. Like I can sit down and write an email to someone, but to actually think out, this is the script over 10 emails that I want to take them through that will slowly take them down this funnel from awareness to hopefully eventually preference to purchase. 
you got to kind of, it's like a chess player thinking eight or 10 moves ahead. And that's a very unique uh, skill set that can take a little bit of practice. And the other thing that is, I've just continually been learning through all these interviews is that there's no alternative for experience. You can't fake it. You can't hack 10 years of being in the world of marketing and branding into one year. With that being said, people are always hungry for that, or at least hungry to know that they're on an effective path towards developing these skills. Um, You've been to business school, you've worked in big companies, you've worked in small companies. With all of that in mind, is there a particular direction that you would point a young person who is trying to figure out, you know, branding is interesting, marketing is interesting, I don't necessarily know where to start. Mm -hmm. Where would you tend to point someone? So I've had people ask me like, well, how, how do I become a CMO? And I think that that's really the wrong question because uh, so often in life, people choose their goal and then they try to build a plan to reach that goal. But in real life, you probably spend 1% of your life achieving a goal and 99% of it working towards it. Right. Um, so I, I really would try to ask people like, what are you most passionate about? What do you enjoy most? And then how do you choose the goals that are going to result from the activities you love instead of choosing a plan around the goal you love, if, if that difference makes sense. It, it is an interesting debate because there's definitely, I, I'm a big believer in kind of process goals over outcome goals. And, and that's a big part of it. But at the same time, there is a degree of reverse engineering what it is that you're going after and the purpose that that can inject into your daily actions. I, I, I'm also a big believer that there's certain things that, a perfect example is a friend of the a friend of mine. He was one of the very early guests. Jason Miller taught himself SEO for his websites that he runs, Active Cities, and he would have never ever wanted to learn SEO, but because he had this purpose behind it, it made it much easier. And maybe someday in the future, he could become the an SEO expert and an SEO consultant only because of what he's had to learn throughout that process. And I'm always just curious about that distinction between I have this thing that I'm reverse engineering and whatever it takes to make that happen, I can now inject a lot more purpose into versus I have these really high quality processes in place, whether that's eating healthy or doing the right type of work or what have you. And that's just going to take me somewhere and and where people fall on that. I I think it depends how far off the goal is. So if you said, I, Aaron, my long-term 20-year out vision is to be like this media mogul and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get there, but you really don't enjoy the process of whether it's, you know, the website or the blogging or the podcasting or the promoting and, and that's all kind of being suffered through as a means to that end, I'd probably say you're, you know, it may not be worth it. It may not be the right track, but if you actually enjoy the process of podcasting, of having the conversations, of blogging, you're willing to pick up some new skills in service to that I'm all for it. But I, I think that those are genuinely different uh, propositions. Um, and a lot of the skills I've picked up, um, you know, SEO, Photoshop, um, the AdWords, uh, all that stuff, I, I picked up in service to these high level skills, but I also enjoyed that process. And all I'm trying to say is for the people that are interested in doing uh, digital marketing or sort of leading uh, a team, you know, j- just make sure <laughs> that you don't just like the title, you like the work. And that maybe should seem obvious, but as, as long as you do, you're going to pick it up very naturally. And I would also encourage people, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. So the best way to do it is not necessarily to 
uh, try to pick up every aspect of digital marketing simultaneously. It may be really specialized in blogs for a while and content marketing and then move on to pay-per-click and then to analytics and then maybe to design. But giving each one of those kind of your, your total focus, I found to be a much better way to learn and learn deeply and actually learn quickly rather than just kind of trying to absorb it all simultaneously. I totally agree. And also, once you've become a master or maybe just an expert of a skill, that model for how to become an expert is also something that you start to learn. And as you apply that to more and more things, the maybe the learning curve slightly shortens and you become a more effective uh, learner, so yeah. to speak. And, and w- one like last twist on that, the, if you're successful as you run up in your organization or grow your organization, the skills that you maybe loved or attracted you to that role, you're going to spend less and less time doing. So... I, I, I like that work, but I also really like meeting with people. I like coaching people. Um, I've done sort of sports and teams l- like you, and I, I really, the opportunity to build someone up in, in the areas that they want to improve in is um, one of my favorite parts of my work. But if you're someone who's happiest, and a lot of people are with their kind of head down and, you know, hood on from their hoodie and just like deep in it. Um, my friend Steve describes that he's a computer programmer and he describes it as being in the matrix. And what you like least about the work is the interaction. You know, it's okay. There, not everyone has to sort of be a, an executive or a leader. It, it's great to just get better and better at, at the skill set that you're most passionate about. And the world needs that. Absolutely. In terms of either being a mentor or just leading different teams at these different companies you've been in, um, is there a mistake from your past leadership experience that you've either corrected or are in the process of working to improve? I know for, for me to give a personal example, I in times this was effective, but particularly on sports teams, tended to be the person who just said what needed to be said right out of the bat. And what that creates, particularly from a leader, is once the leader or the kind of alpha person at the top top of the hierarchy shares their opinion, it's inherently less safe or less secure for people lower in the hierarchy to share their opinion. They, They don't feel as comfortable disagreeing once that idea has come out. So one thing I've worked on is being someone who listens first and for a while and then shares my opinion at the end if it's appropriate. Is there any mistake that you look back and maybe, you know, wince or just kind of chuckle at something you used to do that you've improved on? Um, I mean, we'd have to have like a multi-part thing to talk about all my mistakes, but uh, <laughs> to, to, to get a couple of the highlights, I think my view when I first started uh, as an entrepreneur was that if you're a founder, your job is to do everything. And um, that kind of living under your desk and working 100 hours a week is just what you do. And that's the path to success. And I've seen more and more that that's, that's like, you know, you can do that for a weekend or for a week if you have kind of a deadline or crunch, but it's not a good or even a productive way to live a long-term lifestyle. Um, it's not even good for the company. And that it's, it's kind of like in the Indy 500, right? Everyone's trying to get in first place, get in front of the car in front of them, but they still have to stop and gas up and get new tires because they're not going to do any good with their floor, uh, with their foot on the gas, uh, with an empty tank, you have to take that time to re-energize. So I think I've I've really found for myself that, you know, even balancing like a family and work and hobbies and friends and all of that, if a little bit less gets done, but you can take time to take care of yourself, then you're also gonna be in a much better place to take care of 
everyone you care about and everything you care about and and also to to be willing to prioritize i i fundamentally and this is something that's changed deeply in my views but i believe workaholism is lazy because it's a failure to plan it's a failure to prioritize it's a failure to 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 make the really hard choices and and it can give you kind of tunnel vision um so now you know, instead of making everything my first priority, but also making everything my last priority by doing that, I try to pick, you know, what are the two or three things that can potentially really transform my company or transform my life and kind of let everything else slide. If a couple of emails don't get opened, so be it. If if a blog article has a typo in it, so be it. And I'm willing to make that sacrifice if I know that I'm putting that time into something that isn't just going to incrementally improve things one or 2%, but could double or triple or 10x the, the results I'm looking for. I dig that. That's definitely something that I I need to get better at and work on. So I'll take that as an impetus to reflect on that and hope the listeners will as well. As we aim towards wrapping up here, Barry, uh, before we tell people where to connect with you and issue the personal challenge, is there anything that you were hoping to mention today that I didn't give you a chance to? I got You asked about things I've improved in. I have one more just short one that, sure. that has definitely changed. I, I had always seen um, reorgs or layoffs as like a pretty painful thing to, to do and a kind of like a, a mean thing, an inhumane thing. And that has definitely changed. Um, I have had to let some people go. And I've seen like, if, if they're not in the right culture, and they're not in the right role, you're not doing your organization any favors having them there, but you're not doing them any favors having them there. And it is very possible to say and, and mean it with a heart full of love. I want you to be somewhere where you can be more successful and have everyone be better off. So for, for, for anyone out there that uh, has someone on their team that, you know, they wish they had never hired, <laughs> uh, I, I hope that you'll, you'll take an opportunity not to, just to improve your team and your life, but in fact, to improve their lives and help them be um, where their unique contribution can be appreciated. Awesome. I love that. And I, I think that episodes or situations like that can always be reframed. And I think that's a powerful way to do it. Uh, Barry, I'm sure people are going to want to connect with you and learn more about identified technologies. Um, so if that's what they want to do, what digital coordinates can we provide them to do so? Sure. Um, our website is identifiedtech.com. We're often hiring. So whether you are a developer or a salesperson or a marketer, what have you, we would love to hear from you. You can reach me. Uh, my name is Barry Rapkin, B-A-R-R-Y-R-A-B-K-N on LinkedIn, Facebook. I try to help out startups and businesses any way I can. Um, you can go to barrybrands.com. It's kind of my, my personal site and, and reach out. I'd love to help. And um, yeah, I'm genuinely passionate, uh, like you, Aaron, about Pittsburgh, about startups, and uh, love connecting people. Um, so but please, please let me know how I can help. Yeah. And if uh, people are in Pittsburgh, you host Hackers and Founders, mm-hmm. and they should definitely come check that out as well. This has been great, Barry. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, being a friend, being a listener. And uh, I'd love to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. So you asked me before, you know, what's something I struggle with? And I don't claim to have it all figured out, but I have one um, practice that has made a big, big difference in my life. And um, that is whatever your goals are, go ahead and write a to-do list. Write it today. If you're probably listening on your iPhone or something like that. So so get your note section out and write it. And what your to-do list is, is, okay, you got your number one priority, something that you really, really care about. Maybe it's getting that promotion. Maybe it's um, planning out your wedding. Maybe it's getting more family time, whatever it is. But what your to-do list is, is you're going to write all the things that are your second priority that are getting in the way. 
all the things that are easy to slip into. Maybe that's uh, cable. Maybe that's uh, ESPN. But maybe it's junk food getting in the way of your, your fitness plans. But I define sacrifice as being willing to trade something good for something better. And if you're really passionate, if it really is your first priority, it's not enough to just say it. We all only have 24 hours in the day. So you have to say, look, what isn't going to happen? What am I intentionally going to put aside and hit pause on so I can give that focus and that emphasis to the things that matter most? Yeah. And it's often the insidious seven out of 10 type of activity. It's not always a bad thing, but it's just just a good thing. Exactly. And it can be removed. I, I dig that. I love it. Excellent challenge. Hope people will take that. And thank you again so much for coming on, Barry. My pleasure, Aaron. Keep up the good work. We just went deep with Barry Rabkin. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to yet another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Would really appreciate it if you hit subscribe, if you're a first-time listener, and more importantly, if you're someone who's been listening for a while and never headed over to Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to this show, if you could go and give us a review. We have a number of five-star reviews, but I'm actually fast approaching 100 five-star reviews over on iTunes, and it would really mean the world to me if you would take the time to go and do it. Helps more people discover the show. A little bit of social proof for the other podcast listeners that are out there would also really mean the world to me if you'd share this or one of your favorite episodes of the show with one other person. Podcasts are notoriously hard to grow because it's not that easy to share a 30-minute, 40-minute, 50-minute podcast episode with a network of friends on a social platform and get them to all jump on it because it's not quite so easily digestible. But often those one-to-one recommendations are where the magic really happens. We've had a number of listeners do that in the past and it's been fantastic. But I'd just like to ask again, if you are enjoying this show, please share one of your favorite episodes with a friend. I'd love to be a part of that connection. My email, my Twitter, it's all readily available to you. But it would just mean the world to me the same way it means so much that you continue to listen to this program. Thank you so much and have an excellent day. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.